Welcome to Engage Arizona. I'm Kathy Herod. Daily, we hear about the so-called rights of individuals, including children, to change their gender, meaning from male to female or female to male. Studies show the number of people who self-identify as LGBTQ has skyrocketed. The medical community has embraced transitioning, even children to the opposite sex. Governments have embraced transgenderism at the cost of religious and conscience belief, and still they cannot shake the truth of biology and God's natural law. They can't change the DNA. We are seeing a steady stream of those who did transition or try to, but now are detransitioning. Detransitioning is a new word in our vocabulary and are courageously speaking out to share their stories with others. Among them is Katie Anderson, who is with me to share her story and her insights into the struggle with gender dysphoria. Thank you, Katie, for sharing with us today. Thanks for having me. So I've listened to some of your, um, you know, some of what you've shared before, and you say you were a tomboy growing up, but never thought you were a boy. So what changed your mind about that, and how do you, how did you get to the place where you wanted to be male? So that is right. As a child, I was very much a tomboy. Um, I really liked Spider-Man, anything superheroes, but I didn't think I was a boy until later. It was really until I was. Um, I was taught more about the LGBT community in school with peers and especially online. YouTube was a big one for me. So when I was feeling confused and I would turn to social media and I would just watch videos, I would see other teenage girls identifying as boys who just looked a lot happier than I did. And looking back, it seemed like it made sense for me to be transgender because I fit the stereotype for it perfectly. I could look back and I could say, I was a tomboy, puberty was awkward, and all these things fell into place. So then I decided I'm going to identify as transgender. And at first, it really did feel right to me. What was the first step in transitioning? Um, and how did people respond to you? The first step was, one, coming out to everybody and telling them that I wanted to go by a new name and pronouns. And I changed my name to Caden from Katie to Caden. So not much of a change. And I told everybody that I wanted to be called by male pronouns. So he, him, and everybody did that. There was no issue with it. It was also so new at that point that I think nobody really knew to push back on it at all. So you really didn't get questioned. It was like, oh, sure. Let's, you know, no problem in your circle of friends and family right, exactly. and all of that. Well, talk a little bit more about the role of social media or the online websites, because I think this will be a, you know, thing a lot of people don't realize really the role that social media is playing right now. Yeah, I think it actually plays the biggest role. So I don't remember exactly how I first came across the transgender-related YouTube videos, and I think now it might be more prevalent on Instagram or TikTok, but for me, it was YouTube. I don't remember how I first came across it, but when I finally did come across it, I would just watch hours and hours of these videos. It was almost every day that I was watching these teenage girls identifying as boys. And I was thinking, I really want what they want. And the way that the algorithm is set up is if I'm watching these videos and I'm engaging with them and I'm liking the content, then I'm just going to get more and more of that. So it sort of put me in this echo chamber of transgenderism and gender ideology so then it was just solidifying me deeper and deeper into a false ideology. 
the same kind of algorithm that someone who's looking for a vacation spot or a hotel or for a certain clothing store, then you start getting flooded with the ads. And I think sometimes we don't, oh, really? Yeah, that's how, how social media and online is working now. You've also shared about a euphoria or a high that you were, were chasing. I think that's, that's something I think probably a lot of people don't understand or have seen. What did you mean by a euphoria that you were chasing and, and that kind of high that it gave you? So people who identify as transgender more often than not have what's called gender dysphoria, which basically just means discomfort with your biological sex. When you have the dysphoria, it's really controlling because it's telling you, and a lot of times in the trans community, dysphoria as an emotion is personified and you'll hear people talking about the dysphoria, you know, controlling them in a certain way and making them feel a certain way. So so it's personified in, in that sense. But the dysphoria would make me feel like I needed to go further and further with things. And every time that I would take a step, so I would come out as transgender and my family supported me, that changed my feeling from dysphoria to euphoria, which is the opposite. It's this intense, good feeling. And it's it's fleeting, it's momentary, so it doesn't stay around long. But you can get it every time that you give into your dysphoria. So if your dysphoria tells you, you know, you have to take testosterone, which is something that I would say my dysphoria was so bad that I ended up taking testosterone. When you start taking it, when you're seeing the effects and you have the deep voice and the facial hair and the increased muscle mass, you start feeling that euphoria all over again. And it just makes you want to continue down this path. And then the same thing happens when you get top surgery um, as a female to male transgender identifying person you have your your breasts removed so i had a double mastectomy and after that seeing myself with a flat chest sparked that euphoria this intense happiness that i actually stood up straighter in my day-to-day life because i was so happy with it but at every step you notice you go from dysphoria to euphoria back to dysphoria and it it just fades away after each high but you're just always chasing it so when you started taking testosterone and had the, the top surgery, what did you go through counseling? What was it like? Um, what was the process to where, um, to where you would start doing the transitioning? All I had to do was come out to my doctor, tell her that I'm transgender, and then she referred me to a gender clinic, and they got me started on hormones. I didn't need a therapist or anything. I think legally I may have needed one because they had to have an in-office therapist or counselor sign off on everything. But I wasn't required to have, you know, so many therapy sessions or this many months of therapy sessions. It was just one appointment with her and she signed off on everything. So really nothing of a, of really a mental health evaluation or really multiple counseling sessions to make sure that this was the decision that you'd want to make. Right. There was none of that. Um, so you were on testosterone, then you had the top surgery. Then what happened next? You had a, another surgery after the top surgery? Yes, I did. So about three or four years after my top surgery, I had a hysterectomy. And that, a lot of times for female to male transgender identifying people, is medically necessary in a way. Because if you're going to continue with testosterone use, um, you're internal reproductive structures are just so damaged at that point that you start experiencing 
bad abdominal pain, which is the state that I was in. I was experiencing really bad abdominal pain. And so my doctors approved me to get a hysterectomy, including the removal of my ovaries. So it was uterus, cervix, fallopian tubes, and both ovaries were removed. And there was no trouble getting that passed, getting that put through insurance. There was no issue with it. And that surgery actually happened in 2020, in the summer of 2020. So everything was shut down, but they were still doing um, these hysterectomies. Whereas if they really couldn't do a surgery, they could have stopped my testosterone usage. But anyway, during the hysterectomy, they, they did something wrong. I don't know the whole story behind it. But coming out of surgery, one of my arteries was left open and it wasn't supposed to be. So coming out of surgery, nobody knew why I was getting worse and not better in recovery. And hours later, they realized that I'd been bleeding out, but it was all internal. So there was no sign of it. And when they did realize that, they rushed me back in for emergency surgery. But by that point, I was already losing consciousness. And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm lucky that my organs didn't start shutting down because I was pretty close to dying after I went back in for the emergency surgery and they fixed everything. I came out and I had three blood transfusions after that. And I was eventually fine to leave the hospital, I think a day or two later, but it was still such an awful experience. And even after that, they were asking me about future surgeries and trying to refer me to other doctors, but I didn't go through with anything else because that was just such a horrible experience. So, you know, you've talked about being a tomboy and playing sports and the euphoria. You know, how much did it, when you when you first started transitioning, that you felt like you were fitting in more to the LGBTQ community or the trans community as opposed to when you're a tomboy and you and the awkwardness through puberty and that type of thing? That was, did you initially, did the euphoria also mean that you, you just felt like you were fitting in more? It did in some ways, but in other ways it didn't because my politics had always been not super conservative, but more conservative than most of the LGBT community. So I went to a support group before and they were cool. At least we all had the LGBT thing in common. But if we would try to have a conversation about anything else, I was still kind of pushed to the side just because my views didn't match up with them on everything. So I didn't fit in more with the LGBT community, but it was, it did give me some peace of mind to know that I had a community out there who was supporting me through this. So you went through the surgeries, you almost died with the last surgery. What led you, I mean, how did you come to the point where you wanted to detransition? So after the hysterectomy, I was scared of future surgeries. And so I stopped thinking about anything with that. But I did continue taking my testosterone until one day I just had a regular haircut appointment and I just went in for a haircut, just my regular men's haircut. I'd been getting it for years and we finished up. My barber did a good job. But when I got back home, I kept looking in the mirror because I couldn't shake the feeling that I just looked like a female, which at the time I really didn't. So I shouldn't have seen myself like that. But I just kept looking in the mirror and just seeing myself as a female with a men's haircut. And I just thought I looked ridiculous. So that really got me thinking that I'm doing the wrong thing. This isn't how I'm supposed to live my life. And so I stopped taking testosterone, but I didn't really know what to do in terms of detransitioning. So I just stopped taking the testosterone and looked for a doctor who, who could give me estrogen because I don't have ovaries anymore. So I have to take either testosterone or estrogen. And since then I started 
just doing more feminine things, seeing how I felt about it. And for the most part, I still hated it, but I was coming to terms with the fact that I'm female and I can't change that no matter how hard I try. So what kind of support when you started to, to be more female and go back to how to, to how you had been? What, well, you couldn't go back. I don't mean that, but I mean, how, what what kind of support or help did you have or, or community when you um, started to um, go back to being female? So even though I didn't feel super connected with the LGBT community in the past, when I started to detransition, I really felt like I just couldn't go to them for anything. If I would try to explain things to the gender clinic, it just felt like, they didn't really want the detransition statistic. So they would kind of try to jump around that. So I ended up going to church. I went to a Catholic church in my neighborhood and I did a private confession with the priest. And after that, I thought I really should find Christian communities to help me through this because I think they're going to be the most accepting and the most helpful with actually challenging my internal dialogue and being able to detransition and, and pull myself out of this dysphoria So I found another church closer to where I work and I went in for a few services and then I ended up talking to the pastor about being transgender and he helped me just by starting off telling me that I should consider going back to using my birth name, Katie. And so I told him I would, but I told him only at church. And even at that point, it was really hard to hear people call me Katie that was causing intense dysphoria for me. I just hated being called by a girl name and often girl pronouns because, you know, if I'm presenting as Katie, then they'll call me she, her. And that was just really painful. That was causing so much dysphoria, but I just kept doing it only at church just once a week. And then the name and the pronouns didn't hurt as much. So I thought, okay, now I can move to the next thing. So it was really that Christian community saying, you know, we love you, but we're not going to lie to you that really helped pull me out of the dysphoria. That's really important to know that they loved you, but they, so that that tension that we see between truth and grace at times, that it sounds like that they hit it on both counts, that they showed you grace and truth and love by helping you be a female. Yes. Um, what, um, any thoughts about it as far as like what you learned about yourself through this process or regrets or kind of like where you are now and how, how you've processed it? Yeah, so now I look back and sometimes I wonder how I ever thought that I was even a boy. Like it just, sometimes I look back and I think that doesn't make sense. That logic just doesn't make sense. So I did learn a lot about myself and a lot about how I need to challenge my internal dialogue where before I didn't see the dysphoria as just terrible internal dialogue and me telling myself that, my body's wrong in all these different ways. But now I can see that when that dysphoria creeps up and tries to really just, you know, hit me where it hurts, I can say back, no, this is completely false. I'm supposed to be a female. This is my body. This is the only body I get. Nothing I do to it is going to change that. So that's really helped me coming out of this. So what do you say to the person today that's considering transitioning and um, that tomboy girl or that tomboy um, adult who thinks that maybe they're the opposite gender, what do you say to them? I would say that everything on social media, everything in the media is given to you through an algorithm. It's just feeding you what you want to see. And a lot of people will say that 
coming out as transgender and transitioning, especially in the public spotlight, is a really brave and courageous thing to do. But it's actually not because at every step, even though it's awkward and uncomfortable and sometimes scary, you're just giving into the dysphoria. You're just letting the dysphoria control you. And I would tell them that you're stronger than that. You can actually stand up to it and face it. And it's going to be hard at first, but in the long run, it's going to make a huge difference. And how long, you haven't been speaking out that, that, that long of a period of time. It's only been in the last year or so, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So it was last October that I spoke at a private pastor's conference. And then it's just been this year that I started speaking out publicly. I initially used a pseudonym, Katie Lennon, rather than Anderson, just because I didn't know what to expect for backlash or anything. But now I have myself more organized. I know what I'm doing. So I just figured... I'm going to use my real name. I don't want to lie about my name because that was such a big part of transitioning and detransitioning was my name. So now I'm back to just using my real name, Katie Anderson. But yeah, this is all completely new to me, but so far so good, I'd say. What has the backlash been like? I mean, what, as far as like threats or attacks from the trans community or what, what is that? Have you faced much of that or a lot of that? No, I haven't faced any of that yet. What would you say to someone who's transitioned, who starts to question? I mean, basically the same that you'd say to someone who's thinking about it. So I would say it's really tempting to start thinking that your life isn't worth living. And there was a time when I was going back to the church and considering the detransition that a lot of my prayers were just asking, you know, can I come home now? As in like, can I die now? Can my life be over? This is too hard. And... I would tell that person, you know, this isn't the end. Yes, it's hard, but it gets better because your body just, it is what it is. Whatever your biology is, that's what it is. And your body will try to restore itself as best it can. So, you know, last year when I first started detransitioning, nobody would have ever believed me that I was biologically female. And today, I don't think anybody would believe me besides hearing that my voice is deep. I don't think anybody, anybody would believe that I took testosterone for seven years. So things really do get better, and they get better quickly, but that doesn't mean it isn't painful to get through it. And transitioning back is possible. And I, yeah, let me ask this for a kind of my final question. Parents so often are told that if they don't help their child transition, then the child's going to commit suicide. And parents are driven by the fear that their child is going to commit suicide if they don't enable the transition. What, what do parents need to hear? I mean, what, how do, what do you see, say to a parent who has a child who says they want to transition, whether they're a minor or an adult? Um, any advice for parents? So no detransitioners that I've heard of. Um, actually, sorry. Every detransitioner that I've heard from, I've heard their story, myself included, will say that they didn't have any thoughts of suicide until they decided to detransition. So it was only after transition, after medical intervention, that they came out of it feeling completely ruined, their bodies destroyed. They're just totally humiliated having to admit that they were wrong about a big decision, that it's then that they start feeling suicidal. So how, any further advice for a parent? How should they love their child through um, the thoughts of, transition, of wanting to transition to the opposite gender? What can parents if do to love- help their child? So parents are really good because they, they do love their children, especially if they're reaching out you know, for help and looking for resources like this and hearing stories from, de- from detransitioners. 
we're always going to say, love your child, but don't affirm falsehood. That's a big one. And as hard as it seems, there are ways to restrict internet usage. And I'm not a parent myself, so I've never had to deal with, you know, pulling a 14 year old girl off of a, off of an internet addiction, you know, pulling her off of Instagram, but there are ways to do it. And if your child you know, goes through a phase where they hate you for a year and a half, it's going to be a lot better than watching them transition and then having to go through a detransition after, because I think that it's turning into a lot of people are starting to detransition because they're just giving out hormones to anybody who asks for them at this point. And let me mention for our listeners that in Arizona, Phoenix Children's Hospital in the Phoenix metro area has a gender-affirming clinic, and our state law prohibits um, gender reassignment surgery for a minor, but it doesn't prohibit puberty blockers or hormone therapy. And um, so anyone who thinks this isn't happening in Arizona, it absolutely is happening in Arizona, just like it is all around the country. Well, Katie, if you don't mind me asking, any prayer requests that you'd like to share with us? So I like to always pray for just everybody in the LGBT community. For myself personally, I'm just really starting on this journey of going public. So that's something that I always appreciate prayers for. And my family, you know, because we're all navigating this together. And you're close to your family. Yes, I am. That's that's really exciting and a blessing. Well, we will certainly keep you in prayer. And I just want to say, you know, thank you, Katie, for... Um, you know, for what you're willing to share in your heart for others who are experiencing the same tugs. Um, I often think about the little girls that are tomboys who love to play sports and being led down a path that's um, not a truthful path, as, as we might put it that way. So um, most people don't get from mainstream media and activists stories like yours. And so you and Chloe Cole and all the ones that are leading in this, um, may God bless you and protect you and keep you and give you the the capacity, the energy, the support system, um, and we will certainly at Center for Arizona Policy and Engage Arizona keep you in our prayers. And we just um, are awed by your um, strength, by your courage, um, and um, we're grateful. Um, mo- most of all, we're grateful for you being able to, to share your story. So thank you again for being with us on Engage Arizona. Yes, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Engage Arizona. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like and subscribe and leave us a rating or review on your preferred podcast platform. Don't forget to share with family and friends. And if you would like to learn more, please visit our website at azpolicy.org.